Pastor Kent Hughes recalls visiting one of his longtime church members and also a fellow elder in his church, a man who was a doctor named Andrew Chong. And he was in the hospital having a stent and his heart cleared of blockage. The procedure turned out to be very invasive and dangerous, and sadly, it just didn't go according to plan. And so in the middle of the surgery, the surgeon came out to the family and told them that Andrew was bleeding too much, that he may not make it through the night. And so they urged the family to be prepared to come in and see him and talk to him and make their perhaps last words with him known. So Andrew's family and his pastor, Pastor Hughes, gathered around him as he came out of the anesthetic. And within moments, he began to writhe in intense pain and labored in difficult breathing, unable to speak. But as he was becoming more cognizant of his surroundings, he saw his family there. And so he motioned to them for a pen and paper. And with Herculean amounts of effort, considering how in recent days he was not even to sign his own name, but with all of the concentration he could muster, he wrote out 12 simple words and one singular column. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And with that, he whispered his last words that he would ever say on this earth. Nothing has changed. Pastor Hughes goes on to say that in that moment, it's as if he were sitting in prison with the Apostle Paul himself as he looked upon this face of his beloved brother now passing into glory. See, Dr. Chong understood well the meaning of Paul's famous declaration, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. At the crescendo of his pain, when the seemingly sane thing to do would be to panic, to plead for one's life. Instead, Andrew reaches back into Paul's victorious declaration and makes it his own. And this morning, what I would like for us to know as a congregation is that in your worst moments, this declaration for me to live as Christ and to die as gain can be yours too. With this sentence, we see perhaps one of the most well-known sentences in the entire Bible. Definitely in Philippians. Probably in the New Testament. Maybe just in the entire Bible. And it stands before us as not only one of the great truths of this particular letter, but I think one of the great truths of the Gospel. Whether we live or whether we die, it is all in and for and with Christ. And that's very good news. Now before we get into this passage this morning, let's just recall where we've been, where we're coming from. Now you remember Paul has been encouraging the Philippians, and by extent us, all these centuries later, because while it looks like the Roman Empire has finally buried the good news of the Gospel by imprisoning Paul, Unwittingly to them, all they've really done is plant the seed of the Gospel. Seeds are meant to be buried. They're meant to be covered up because that's when their full potential for life comes out. 
And unbeknownst to them, this thing that they buried is already starting to take root. It's already starting to turn over a new leaf. Even in Caesar's own home, we learned last week, people are coming to faith in Jesus. At the center of secular power, a new king is being proclaimed. As the good news was heard and believed by even some of Paul's guards, it gave courage to the Philippians that whatever they would face in their very ordinary lives, just like we have all very ordinary lives, that they could trust Jesus all the more. That they could be emboldened to share His message more and more because if God could overturn Paul's Rome like He once did to Jonah's Nineveh, then He can surely do this work in the region of Macedon. For us, He can surely do this work in Gwinnett County in the greater metro Atlanta area. The work that He has done in Paul at His darkest moment is the work that He can do for us right now. So finally, Paul gives one last encouragement. He says you can be sure that because this Gospel is so powerful, so potent, that there will be many charlatans, many con artists that will see how it can be used to their own advantage. And they'll try to command its power for themselves out of rivalry with the prophets and the apostles, out for their own selfish ambition to get money and status and fame and and whatever comes. And many will indeed, and we have seen this throughout the centuries, now 20 centuries after Paul was writing this letter, there have been many people that have taken up God's name in vain to glorify themselves, to enrich their share, to secure their power. But Paul surprises us. You think at this moment it's when he'll give a a resounding denouncement of that kind of behavior. But Paul instead says, that's okay. Because the Gospel is so powerful, so out of our control, that even when people that don't really follow Jesus are preaching Jesus, God will capitalize off of that to get the Gospel out to whoever He wants it to go. And so we don't have to spend all of our time arguing and disputing, fighting about Christian practice, Christian doctrine. We just have to be obedient and believing and obeying the Lord and preaching His Gospel. In our day and age, when we are so want to, as soon as we hear something on the news, something worth celebrating or something worth mourning, we want to go online and get in fights with people about it. Paul says, Don't worry about that. The Gospel is being proclaimed. You focus on how you can join in proclaiming that Gospel. And of course, all this brings us to our passage here today. Where if you couldn't see it before, Paul makes the stakes as clear as day, whether in life or in death. All our hope, all our joy, all our everything is in Jesus and Jesus alone. So let's look at these next few verses together. Despite Paul's unjust imprisonment, despite the fact that his enemies are gloating over his imprisonment, Paul is unfazed by all that. All the things that would probably knock us down a few pegs, Paul's not even paying attention to. He says this, I'll continue to rejoice because I know that this, the thing I'm going through right now, will lead to my salvation. 
So let's pause there for a moment. That seems like a peculiar phrase for him to say. Paul has been rejoicing in the salvation of others for this entire book so far. Even his avowed enemies, the Romans. But now he's rejoicing in what will lead to his own salvation. Isn't that kind of curious to you? Uh, well, let me put it this way. It seems to pose the question to us, is, is Paul, does he not regard himself as already saved? Does he think that there's something lacking in him so far that even his enemies have been able to uh, grasp onto? What is Paul talking about in being led to his own salvation? Paul, as he is wont to do in his writing, is speaking on multiple levels here. He's speaking and addressing truth in a multifaceted way. First, he's speaking about being saved, I think, in a physical sense. The word he uses here to, for salvation or deliverance has the connotation of being rescued from bondage, rescued from actual physical imprisonment. So in verse 20, he says that his hope is that he would not be ashamed about anything and that he would fully, with a heart full of courage, go on to honor Christ in such a way that in everything he says, the Gospel will be preached. So we get the implication from this, at least in Paul's thinking, is that he expects that he's going to have to give an account to some earthly authority about why he's in prison, what he believes, what got him here in the first place. And in that, he's confident that before any Roman tribunal, or even if he's brought before Caesar himself, he will be able to defend himself because he's defending, not really himself, he's defending the Gospel. The claims of Christ, the messages that we've read about all throughout the Scriptures. So, he's thinking that he will be rescued from that. Rescued from the final indictment that he might expect from secular authorities. But in addition to being saved from that, physical deliverance, I think he's also showing us his cards, his how he's hoping in a spiritual deliverance. That is his final salvation. Which is why he says in the latter part of verse 20, whether by life or by death, whatever happens to him, whether he is physically saved from his problems or not, that Christ would be honored regardless. Either on earth, or in heaven, Paul is confident that he will be delivered and that he will be saved. But how so? There's a vehicle by which this will happen. Verse 19 gives us maybe a surprising answer. Through your prayers and with help from the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. Through the prayers of the church and the imparting of the Holy Spirit, Paul expects that he'll be saved. All of this, again, to just summarize, whether he's standing before the Roman courts on earth or the high throne of heaven, in this life or in the next, Paul knows that either physical or spiritual salvation, and in either one of those, his final hope is not in himself. He'll be saved not through what he's doing. He is saved, and this is the words of Paul, he is saved through the prayers of the Philippians 
and the Spirit of Christ. Theologian G.B. Caird puts it this way, that salvation is a threefold act of God. It's an accomplished fact. It's something that's happened in the past. But it's an experience that continues on into the present. And finally, it's a consummation still yet to come. That's what salvation is. See, in our evangelical and baptistic circles, I think especially here in the American Southeast, we always hear a great emphasis on getting saved. That the work is done somewhere in the past when we made a decision or we were baptized or we professed awkwardly in front of a church somewhere in in the rural church we grew up in many years ago. That that work is already done. But the Apostle Paul and none of the other apostles talk about salvation in the way that we tend to talk about it. As if it's just a one-time stamp on your passport to heaven, and then whatever happens after that doesn't matter. No, the whole of the Christian life, not only in the past, but in the present and in the future, is one continuous act of God of salvation. Salvation is something that God has worked out for us in the past. That eureka moment where we heard and understood the Gospel. When we were regenerated by the grace of God and able to respond in faith, that justifying act of God in the past, that is salvation, but that's part of salvation. It continues on in our continuing obedience and our our sanctification and goes on even into the future, into our glorification. And this salvation is worked out through the faith and the prayers of the church for the people of God. If that doesn't encourage us as Christians that we ought to be a people of prayer, even for someone like the Apostle Paul, Pray for me as I am being saved. See, that puts an onus on us to not just say, well, you know, he made a profession of faith. They splashed some water on him. He's okay. Pray for me that I will be saved. Now, we're not saying that God is so capricious and flippant like us that if he has a bad day, our salvation is in danger. It's not what's being communicated here. But what Paul is reorienting us around is that our salvation is not a once-in-a-lifetime, way-back-there act that has no bearing on our present moment. The whole of the Christian life is being saved. We see the distinction there. And the the surprising reality is that God not only is the one that does the saving unilaterally, but He, in some mysterious way, through the righteous acts and prayers of His people, incorporates that into our salvation. How that works, now we're in mystery territory. But later in this book, Paul even says, that we should work out our salvation together in fear and trembling and faith and obedience that our being saved is continuing on even now. And so, that gives, I think, us as Christians 
the responsibility to not only assess our spiritual condition, but to be in fervent, active, prayerful obedience and helping each other along in that life too. One of the blessings of being a church is that we're a family here together. We have covenanted together by profession of faith that we are going to be a church together. That doesn't just mean that we come together on Sunday mornings and sing and have polite small talk in the lobby and on occasion we'll go and have a picnic in a horseshoe throwing competition or a Christmas party and banquet. That doesn't just mean that we're polite, friendly acquaintances, but it's we're responsible for one another, for the salvation of each other. Not that we're saving anybody, but that God uses our prayers, our love, our witness, and our worship and persevering each other on to the end. So don't ever think that you come to church as a total passive recipient of whatever's happening up on stage or in the aisles. You come together in a service where you are the one that's serving through praying and worshiping. That is actually doing something. How all the the math of that works out, don't ask me. But Paul is clear. The prayers of the Philippians, while he's going through his worst trial in life, are holding him up before God Almighty. And that's the joy that we can get to do for one another. When we're struggling, we can pray for that person and rejoice in seeing how God is so good and continuing to save. That leads us to our next section. Perhaps one of the most well-known aphorisms of the entire Bible. Philippians 1.21 For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Kent Hughes notes that, or at least in his opinion, when this was first read aloud, you know these letters were brought by a, a messenger and Paul trusted to, to read these letters out loud to to churches and maybe even to answer questions that the congregations might have about what Paul said. You know, when this was read out loud, Kent Hughes says that just the brevity, the parallelism of it, the compactness must have really struck the Philippians when they heard it. It must have rung in their ears the first time they ever heard it read out loud. To live Christ. To die Gain. I remember hearing this phrase in my youth and being somewhat struck by it myself. For to me, that's that's how King James renders it, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. You hear something like that, I think, and don't soon forget it. But, what does that mean? It sounds nice. We see it on t-shirts all the time. Our coffee cups, Facebook statuses, Instagram posts. For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. We see it so much it almost loses its dynamism. What does it mean though? For me to live is Christ. Why does he not say for me to live is a Christ-like thing? For me to live is the Christian thing. For me to live is Christ. That almost seems like a grammatical mistake, right? What does that mean? Well, I think personally, 
I think we are supposed to mull that over. We are supposed to say, that sounds a little strange. We're really supposed to inspect that for all it's worth. And we're to come away with this conclusion, which is the conclusion of the rest of the New Testament. To live as a Christian is to live in union with Christ. We are so united to Jesus by faith in Him and more importantly by the the salvific work that He's accomplished on our behalf that we no longer live separate lives from Jesus. Our lives are so bound together that no light passes between us and Him. That's why Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone is united to Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. You're a different being and person in Christ. Something radically different. You may still have that same scar on your hand from when you fell off your bike in the third grade. You may still have that scar from when you got your knee replaced a few years ago, but you are a different being now that you are in Christ Jesus. Paul goes on to say that your life is subsumed in Christ's life. And this isn't just wishful thinking. In Galatians 2.20, Paul writes this, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Paul's own personal life, whatever's happening in him biologically and chemically in his brain and whatever genetics he has going on and 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 history he has as as a Jewish person raised in this culture and going to... Pharisee school at this time, all the particularities about Paul's life and his body, whether, whether you look at it again purely physically or metaphysically, it changes now that he's in Christ. Again, don't ask me the equation, the chemical analysis of how that works, but something changes when we're in Christ. Our life and history are so entwined in His, that Paul can say, I died on that cross, even though it wasn't me that was nailed to it. And the life I now live is the same life that came up out of that tomb on the third day. All of Paul's triumphs were gained in and through union with Christ. Every church he planted, every demon he cast out, every sick person He healed, every broken heart He comforted is because that was Christ by the Spirit's power working in Him. It had nothing to do with Paul's own power. But the Holy Spirit loves us broken sinners and uses us as vehicles for His good news. We get the joy of being a part of God's salvation history. But make no mistake, it's not because we're so winsome or interesting or or great rhetoricians or anything that people come to faith. No, God is the one that does that, but He does it through us. He does it through Paul. And all the miseries that Paul ever endured were mystically bound in space and time to that old rugged cross on Calvary's hillside. 
to live, to serve, to love, to suffer, whatever the Christian does is no longer his or her own. But rather, it's truly, really, historically, bodily, spiritually, metaphysically, inextricably entwined with Jesus Christ. The best we can understand that now is that just as Jesus shared in our humanity, so now by faith in Him and through His obedient work that He accomplished for us, we share in God's divinity. Hallelujah! Who knows, again, the mystery of how that works. But Paul's whole existence, his whole life, is a ministry centered on Christ, powered by Christ, and reveling in Christ. Or as Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf, how's that for a German name? The great Moravian bishop and missionary, a a personal and spiritual hero of mine, he once wrote this, I have but one enthusiasm in this life. It is He and only He. It's Jesus and only Jesus. That's the only thing worth getting excited about. To live is Christ. But that's not the end of Paul's statement. Because he also says to die is a gain. And in verse 10 of chapter 3 of this book, he reveals a little bit more of what he means by that when he says that his life goals as he faces his inevitable death, are this. My goal is to know Him and the power of His resurrection. To know that experientially and the fellowship of His sufferings because I am being conformed to His death. Paul will know beyond intellectual knowledge, beyond cultural knowledge, he will know experientially what it is to suffer and die and rise with Christ as he continues on in his Christian life. The miseries of this life can be endured. The persecutions and humiliations and imprisonments and pains and illnesses and poverties can be accepted by people like us. People that are in Christ. Those who have been born again, made new creations, who are now dead to their old masters, sin and self and Satan, We can endure these miseries in life. Every rotten thing this world has for us because to die is only to gain. That's not true for the world. But for the Christian it is. In the ancient ruins of of Carthage, which was an important outpost of the Roman Empire in northern Africa, I believe it's in modern day Tunisia. And Carthage, a Roman soldier carved out on a stone there, his own little graffiti, his own little aphorism for what life was all about. He wrote this, to laugh, to hunt, to bathe, to game, that is life. Leisure, prosperity, success, that's life. But what happens when war breaks out? Or poverty settles in? What happens when disease overtakes or families, communities, and cultures dissolve? What happens when death comes knocking on our door? What happens when we're struck down for good and we are long gone and forgotten? What then? 
Rome had no answer for this. And still doesn't. But Paul does. To die is to gain. Because that's when the real life begins. That's when life, the way it was supposed to be, starts. That's when, as the Apostle John writes in his great revelation, death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Death has died. Don't be fooled, church. It's easy for us to get fooled in the Las Vegas of the American life. Don't be fooled into settling for anything less in this life or in your own death than Christ. Don't settle for anything or anyone less than Jesus. Because He was born and He suffered and He died and He rose and He ascended all without sin, all in perfect substitution for you. Paul spells it out in these last few verses. If he lives, if he goes on living, it will mean that he can continue on in the fruitful work of Christian ministry. And that's a good thing. But verse 23, he's honest. I'm torn between these two options because I long to depart. Let's put it in less polite language. I wish I were dead, (laughs) the Apostle Paul says. But not for any selfish or nihilistic reason. Why would he want to die? Because for everybody else, when death is the end of the road, for the Christian, death is only the first step on the great journey that now awaits us. He wants to die so he can finally be with and at rest in Christ for good. No more pain, no more labor, just joy and love and vindication and victory. And Jesus, my Savior forever. Even death by martyrdom, death by execution, death by humiliation is far better than anything Rome did offer, that America does offer, or that any kingdom in this world could ever offer. But he slows down with a sigh in verse 24. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. That's the amazing thing of the Christian life too when you are finally able to see the glories of God, even through a glass darkly, you want to dive headlong into that, into that bliss, into that forgiveness, into that life evermore. But you are so united to Christ that you can't help becoming like Him a little bit. That you can put off your good in the now for the good of others instead. Paul will go on going on for the sake of other people. Which is just what our Jesus did for us. Church, here's the the God's honest truth. None of us know the day or the hour that we will die. All we know is that barring the Lord's miraculous second coming and advent, we will all surely die. You know, there's an ancient Christian devotional saying, it's a phrase in Latin, You've probably heard it or seen it expressed before. Memento mori. You heard that before? Memento mori. That means remember you will die. That was something that pastors told to their parishioners once upon a time. It was something that Christians told to themselves in their quiet moments in life. 
memento mori. Remember, you will die. Now, maybe in our modern sensibilities, that strikes us as a bit morbid. Evangelicals don't like to be pessimistic or morbid or anything else. But I think what we're simply tapping into is not morbidity for morbidity's sake. We're just simply tapping into the truth of the Scriptures. Think of the wisdom of Moses expressed to us in Psalm 90. Teach us to number our days. Teach us to number our days carefully so that we may develop wisdom in our hearts. Show us that our life will not go on forever so we can know a greater life instead. None of us know when we will die, but we, like Paul, should be confident that God has us all right here and right now for a reason. If we persist in this life, even weekly, it's because God wants us to continue on in this life. And I believe that for the Christian, one of the main reasons, if not the main reason, we continue to live and not just go on to glory where we would be much happier and holier. The reason why we can continue to live, I believe, is to do what Paul is doing, and that is to continue to minister and bear witness to who Jesus is for others that do not yet know Him. We are to continue on in our worship of God in such a way and to bear witness to the Gospel's truth to Jesus' goodness and grace through our love for Him and each other and even our enemies, that while we suffer through this life, not for ourselves, but for them, that it can be so clear to anybody that looks on that this Gospel is true. And that this Jesus, whoever He may be, is worth knowing. So Paul concludes in verse 25, Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. Church, remember in this life that God has you, yes, even you, remaining here with all the world's disadvantages, and boy, they are many. He has you here, even with all your aches and pains and sorrows, so that you can partner together with Him. So you can work arm in arm at God's side and seeing others to grow and grow and grow in joy and in faith in Jesus. Paul doesn't care one whit about his reputation. He doesn't care what anybody thinks about him. He doesn't care about his status. He doesn't care about his accomplishments. He'd rather go on to glory he had his druthers. But Paul remains so that when he is with his church family again, that he can experience the most wonderful thing this side of heaven. That they can all together boast and brag and gloat, but not in themselves, but in Jesus Christ and His abounding grace for us. And so Christian, take confidence. Take confidence this very moment. Whether you are alive or whether you are dead. Whether you're living or whether you're dying, that you may be happy and complete and whole and loved forevermore because you are in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, whether You call us to go on living for a short time or a long time, or whether You will soon call us to Yourself in Your time, 
whether we live or whether we die, may it all be in and with and through and for Christ, our light, our love, and our life. Make it so we can see in any circumstance that for us to live is Christ and to die is gain. And whichever path you would have us take, we know that Jesus is at the end of it. For it's in His name that we pray and trust. Amen.